Welcome back. We're charging through to the end of 2021 here at NLEX's weekly podcast. Thank you for staying with us throughout this rather challenging year. It's great to have your company again. My name is James Paniki, and this is your weekly dose of regulatory affairs. Thanks to NLEX's crack team of reporters around the globe. Now, in just over 10 minutes' time, we'll be crossing to Washington, D.C. for a look at the Biden administration's ambitious strategy to combat corruption. There's no arguing with the intentions behind the drive for tougher laws, but have we heard it all before? Our reporter Robert Thomason will be with us to answer that very question. First up, though, killer acquisitions are back on the agenda. Our regular listeners know all about them. It's when a tech giant acquires a startup before it has had a chance to develop into a rival. Killer acquisitions are the bane of regulators around the world. Why is that? Well, because a regulator might not be able to block a deal that isn't anti-competitive right here and now, but is essentially being driven by a desire to neutralise future competition. And in Europe, the plans by Facebook, or Meta as we're now calling it, to acquire a small company called Customer has highlighted differences among competition watchdogs as they approach what they suspect are indeed killer acquisitions. And Facebook appears to have been caught in the middle of this. My Brussels-based colleagues Andrew Boyce and Nicholas Hurst have written a fine piece of analysis about what's going on, and Nicholas joins us right now. So, uh, Nicholas, it's safe to say that last week wasn't a great one for Facebook. That's right. They're trying to buy this small company called Customer, which is basically a company that helps companies communicate with their customers. And uh, it's been a hell of a slog. And just as things started to look up in Europe, and it seemed like the European Commission was going to approve the deal, the German competition authorities sweeped in and announced that they'd have to notify the deal and seek approval in, in, in Germany, in Bonn. And that's a, that's a real problem for them. The deal is now all up in the air. The timeline is shot to pieces. And uh, it's, a, it's a real blow. Now, we should clarify for those unfamiliar with the machinations of the European Union that it is unusual, isn't it, that both the EU regulator and the regulator of a member state would step in to review a deal. Yeah, that's right. One of the cornerstones of merger law in the European Union is that essentially if Brussels is looking at a deal, then national competition authorities don't. This is meant to cut red tape for companies, it's a one-stop shop principle. If your deal is reviewed by Brussels, you don't then need to worry about getting approval from, say, the 28 other national competition authorities. So in one sense, the fact that Facebook finds itself having to notify to Brussels and now to Germany is pretty unprecedented. So what has caused this situation? Why has the German regulator got involved this time? Facebook's caused the situation, It's so to say. it's uh, If you go back maybe 10 years, Facebook went on a buying spree and snapped up first WhatsApp and then Instagram. Now, all the big tech companies were buying small, smaller rivals and challengers and hopeful um, startups all over the place. But Facebook came to symbolize the way that it bought WhatsApp, which was a rival of sorts 
and the way that it snapped up Instagram, which was clearly a challenge to, to, to Facebook's own social network, it, it, it sort of generated these fears of what are called killer acquisitions, i.e. dominant tech company buy, buys up promising rival that could ultimately uh, challenge it. This has been concerning regulators all over the world for a couple of years now. And earlier this year, the European Commission introduced a, a kind of a soft reform, a policy reform to try and deal with the situation. What did it do? It said that if a national competition authority was concerned about a deal, it could ask the Commission to look at it, regardless of whether anyone had jurisdiction to examine this deal. Now, for the European system, that's pretty revolutionary because the European system for the last decade or two has been based on the idea that you know you have to if you meet some fairly clear thresholds you notify if you don't you don't have to worry about it now what happened when the commission announced this policy reform uh, a few countries said that they didn't like it germany was one of them it has its own approach to catching killer acquisitions it was quite for the german government was quite foresightful maybe four or five years ago, and changed the uh, notification criteria, which, as you see, is a more muscular intervention than what the Commission has done, which is just a sort of policy change. Uh, the, Ger- the Germans changed the legislation. Obviously, the German Competition Authority prefers its own approach, and Facebook now is found itself caught between the two systems. And we should say the two systems are really trying to outdo each other in terms of who has the best approach with killer acquisitions. Is that right? That's right. The Germans, I think the the German view of this is that uh, tweaking policy or announcing a new interpretation of existing rules is not enough to deal with the problem of killer acquisitions. Uh, They much prefer their own approach, which was a clear intervention yeah, which would I by rewriting the thresholds. Okay, now the European Commission doesn't usually encourage member states to go their own way on merger reviews. I understand the background of this decision on the part of the Germans that you've just explained now, but I'm assuming that uh, EU officials aren't particularly happy about this development, right? That's right. Now, look, it, 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 in one way, it seems kind of arcane, or it seems relatively unimportant. A massive company like Facebook, instead of having to make one notification in Europe, has to make two. What's the big deal, you could say? Well, for commission officials, it is a big deal. They're very attached to this principle that I mentioned earlier of the one-stop shop. Now, this is the EU competition uh, equivalent of the single market, obviously one of the cornerstones of the European Union project. And they love the idea that this is one of the great simplifications of the European project. You have a merger. It's a big one. It's relevant to the European Union as a whole. The Commission will look at it. And that's the end of the story. There's a, there's a, a simplification in all that, which is, goes hand in hand with the wider simplifying of the, the economy that the single market is meant to, is meant to, to bring. So they're, they're really... Uh, aghast that this, they're really upset to see this principle being undermined in in their view. And of course, in parallel, there is this wider questioning of the the European Commission's authority in the field of competition going on at the moment. 
you've had national competition authorities in different from different countries, perhaps not openly criticising the commission, but kind of questioning why it why it accepted remedies in this case or why it did that in another case or pointing out that its powers are not as powerful as they could be in the field of antitrust. To the layman, this seems like harmless differences of opinion. But in the palace world of uh, European competition law, uh, this sometimes seems like biting criticism. Well, what about the Bundeskartellamt in that case? Because it must have known that this move would antagonise the Commission, right? So what was it trying to achieve? Well, at, at one level, the Bundeskartellamt has these flashy new rules to catch killer acquisitions, but it's never really used them. And this was a chance to roll them out and to set a precedent to actually say, we've got these rules, they can be effective, they can catch the kind of deals that we may be worried about. Look at them, look at them working. This was the opportunity. And yeah, now that they've said that Facebook has to notify its deal in, 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 in Bonn, they have some precedents. So uh, yeah, the first level, that's what they wanted to achieve. But at the, at the second level, I don't think they were actively trying to, to upset or ruffle the feathers of, of the commission. But they really, they really don't subscribe to the commission's uh, approach to killer acquisitions, which was this, which is known as the Article Twenty Two policy, uh, Article Twenty Two uh, po- referral policy, and it was a, which was announced earlier this this year. They think it's it's misguided. Um, they think that it asks national competition authorities by asking them to refer deals that they don't have jurisdiction to review it is effectively asking them to do something that they legally cannot do, um, and often in a very short time frame. So um, in this instance, the commission you know, expected them to refer customers' acquisition of uh, Facebook's acquisition of customer up to um, Brussels. Uh, they had a short time frame to decide. Uh, they didn't know if they had jurisdiction or not, and in their view, it's just simply not possible. And the situation they now find themselves in, where the Commission has conducted a long review of the customer deal, only for Germany to, very far down the road, uh, establish that it also has jurisdiction to look at the, the merger. They say that's the, Commission's, that's the Commission's problem. That was the inevitable consequence of constructing your approach, building your approach to killer acquisitions on shaky foundations. Goodness me. So where does all of this regulatory jostling leave uh, Facebook slash Meta? I mean, from what you're telling me, I think it's safe to assume that the company is worse off than it would have been had the Germans not intervened. That's that's right. I mean, it had submitted, it had offered to make concessions in, in Brussels. So it, it told the Commission that it would make some changes or make some behavioural promises to uh, ease any concerns the Commission had and secure approval. Now it has to notify the deal over again in Germany. In theory, the Commission has already looked at the issues, customer being what it is, Facebook or, or Meta being uh, what it is. These are kind of pan-European businesses, although Italy customers very small and niche, but the, the issue shouldn't be so different in Germany to Brussels. But these days, 
all regulators across the globe seem to be outcompeting each other in terms of how aggressive and ferocious they are towards the big tech platforms. So this definitely opens a window of uncertainty over the customer deal for Facebook that it won't appreciate because who knows? You know, the German competition authority in the past has said that it's not a fan of behavioral remedies, which is precisely what Facebook slash Meta has offered to uh, the commission. Could Germany come out with a, a tougher line? Yeah, that would be a problem for uh, Facebook. That would also be a problem for the commission, which would see its its uh, authority in this uh in this realm challenged even even more. And it would no doubt create uncertainty for any tech company planning to uh, notify authorities in Europe about a future deal, right? I think that's it. It's just the, the, the degree of complexity of getting these deals through is just growing with each, uh, with each one. Tech companies must be looking at, at, at Facebook's struggles with customer a customer is a tiny company with a handful of customers in, in Europe. For example, the UK Competition Authority decided not to look at because its customers were so, were so few. So other tech companies are presumably looking at this and just marvelling at how much, how, how much trouble this is. Yes, indeed. So, Nicholas, this is a fascinating issue. Thank you for walking me uh, through it today. It was great fun. Thanks, James. Nicholas Hurst is MLEX's chief correspondent in Brussels, covering EU merger reviews and antitrust investigations. And the analysis written by Nicholas and Andrew Boyce is available for you to read right now. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very best of our reporting and analysis and for the archive of our weekly podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's available right now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. I'm James Paniki. Thank you for making it this far. Now, if the fight against corruption fires up your imagination, then the recent release of the United States strategy on countering corruption will have made your week, if not your month. The Biden administration is laying out some nuts and bolts initiatives that will have a very real impact on business. Yet how new are some of these initiatives? Robert Thomason is our DC-based corruption expert and he joins us now from the US Capitol. So Robert, uh, how did this uh, strategy come about and uh, I suppose why was it issued at this point in time? Well, Back in June, President Biden issued a national security memorandum in which, um, one, he declared corruption to be a matter of national security interest for the United States. Um, He pointed to how corrupt actors use bribery and other forms of corruption to threaten people to transfer arms, um, to, to uh, evade and harm the rule of law. He, he just pointed out that this threatens the uh, U.S. national security. So that, that was why he did it. And he did, like I said, he did it in the form of a national security memorandum in which he instructed uh, various 
high-level government officials to, to do a 120-day study of existing authorities within the U.S. legal system that he, as president, could use to counter corruption. He also asked for, uh, for suggestions of legislation that could be proposed to Congress. So it got started back in June, and it was issued uh, last week, just before his summit for democracy started. Okay, so in general terms, corruption is on his radar, but what does this strategy hope to accomplish more specifically? Well, it, ho- uh, it, it is trying to coordinate the efforts of the United States government more precisely. Uh, there, there are various laws uh, that address money laundering, that address bribery, uh, that address fraud, that address uh, cheating on government uh, projects. And it's trying to weave all of these elements of existing U.S. legal authority into a more cohesive and coherent and holistic uh, approach that uh, can be used to to counter corruption. Uh, And especially when it affects uh, areas that are prone to violence, that are prone to uh, military action against the United States, and um, he's also looking for ways forward with legislation. He's looking for proposals to send to Congress uh, that would be most effective. So that is um, really what, what it's trying to do in, in precise terms. There are uh, certain programs that he has in mind. For, for example, there's one called uh, Democracies Against Safe Havens in which he wants the United States to lead an effort among other countries to do more to fight corruption, to, 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 to encourage them to issue sanctions against corrupt uh, actors, to deny visas um, for these corrupt actors, and to pass more vigorous laws so, so that people who pay bribes and, and, and launder money have fewer and fewer countries that they can run to and hide. Now, Robert, some of this is sounding familiar, uh, particularly when it comes to calls for international cooperation. I mean, we've heard all of this before, right? I mean, what's new in this strategy? Well, the overarching pillars of the strategy, as you say, are very familiar. Uh, They come up with the calls to coordinate government efforts better, to cooperate with allies more, to hold people accountable. As you say, we, we, we hear all this before. But if if you read it closely, if you read the strategy closely, you'll see things like that DASH initiative, that Democracies Against Safe Havens initiative. Uh, You'll also see uh, him standing up an anti-corruption working group and task force within the U.S. Commerce Department. Uh, Commerce has not ignored corruption, but it's, it's not really had a, uh, a very formal structure to approach it. And th- this is important for businesses, uh, uh, U.S. businesses um, working uh, internationally because they often are faced with competitors who pay bribes and they lose business uh, to those competitors and, and, and they're not always sure what to do. What, what, what this enables them to do is, is it enables them to go to the Commerce Department and issue a grievance 
and uh, the Commerce Department will be better prepared to uh, receive the information and pass it on um, to the appropriate authorities like, like DOJ um, or, or uh, the Treasury Department. So that's, that is something new. They're also going to um, be working with USAID. The, the government wants to look uh, closer at uh, anti-corruption issues and efforts within U.S. foreign aid. So what, what's new there is, 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 is an increased uh, seriousness about uh, that, that kind of corruption. So, so th there are many uh, initiatives at um, the staff level of the U.S. government that, that are new. Okay, now, as you said, Robert, this is the administration's strategy for using tools that it already has at its disposal. But what about the Congress? I mean, you mentioned before uh, legislative proposals and the Biden administration wanting Congress to get involved. Where does Congress fit into all of this? Well, it will. Um, it has the potential to give the administration new statutes um, with which they can prosecute corrupt people. Um, you know, the, the biggest example would be the Enablers Act, which is which some members of Congress have already introduced, which would require financial gatekeepers such as accountants and lawyers to comply with anti-money laundering obligations in ways similar that the banks have to uh, comply with them. Um, they, they, they would have to set up anti-money laundering programs. They'd have to monitor for suspicious transactions and report them. And they'd have to train, um, tra tra train relevant people, have to train their, train their employees to look for money laundering. So, th so that would be a big step um, that Congress could take. And the strategy um, calls for the administration to support such legislation. Uh, that, that would be a very important step that Congress could take. Okay, so how effective would these proposals that have been put forward, how, what kind of an impact might they have? Well, most of them would um, give people who are victimized by, by corruption new avenues to approach the U.S. government. I was, I was at a conference, I was listening to a conference uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, a lawyer stood up and asked a government official what they were doing to counter foreign corruption when U.S. businesses lose contracts to them. Um, this lawyer said uh, he has clients who have seen companies in Africa gain business by bribing officials over there, while his client, um, you know, was obeying the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Th these proposals primarily will, will set up new channels of receiving the information and sharing them among the various enforcers and investigators so, so the U.S. government can get back in touch with, uh, with the government, the, the foreign countries in question, and, um, you know, and pressure them to do something about corruption in their own ranks. Also, it calls for cleaning up the U.S. Act in and of itself. I mean, the, 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 you know, the U.S. is far from innocent in, in permitting 
uh, dirty money uh, to flow through its system. I mean, it's, it's, it's got strong laws, but it also, in some cases, but it also has weak laws. Until, re- until recently, there, 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 there was really no effort to stop anonymous shell companies. But, um, but finally, last year, Congress passed a law that's going to require the disclosure of beneficial ownership of, um, of, of small companies. And I would note that the same week that this strategy uh, was published, the Treasury Department issued rules that would require the disclosure of, uh, of the beneficial owners of small com- companies uh, in, in a very strong effort to eliminate anonymous shell companies that are often used to hide criminal money. So, so basically, the, the effectiveness will be at the transaction level and at, um, the, the, at the level of companies being able to report their grievances. Now, at, at a higher level, at a diplomatic level, it just simply remains to be seen. You know, the, the United States can cajole and it can uh, try to persuade other countries what to do, but that's going to, you know, the, the result of that is going to depend on the, uh, the politics and the cultures of other countries and, quite frankly, how, how, you know, how, how well the United States does it. And um, so, so, so the, at the transactional level, it should be, um, you know, it, it, it should be a step forward. But at the diplomatic level, we'll just have to wait and see. Robert, all of this points to an extremely busy 2022 for you. But thank you very much for keeping us up to date on all of these developments. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Robert Thomason reports on anti-bribery and corruption from our offices in Washington, D.C. His analysis of this new policy is just what you need to be reading this weekend. It's available at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab. Now, it saddens me to face the bleak reality that we've come to the end of today's program, our penultimate show for the year. I hope you can join me again next Friday at more or less the same time. From me, James Panicki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now.